podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm sorry. There's really nothing else I can do. My boss is saying. There's just no money for this situation anymore. I'm sorry, Jamie. I really am. If there was any other choice, you'd know I'd not do this. I just give him a tired nod and rise silently. I go to my desk and find my belongings already gathered and placed on a cardboard box that once held ten packs of printer paper. I pick it up and take it slowly out to the elevator, down to the foyer, out to my car. I climb in and put it on my passenger seat, fastening the belt around it to stop the seatbelt alarm from sounding. So that's it. Seventeen years of daily stand-ups and water cooler gossip, of Friday cake and coffee sessions and birthday card signings, of -of out-of-town conferences and office baby showers. It's over. I'm fired. It wasn't COVID. Maybe it'd be easier if it was. But I tested consistently negative for COVID. Maybe it was mono, my doctor had said. But I had mono when I was 14. Maybe it was Lyme disease then. Ticks like long grass, but I live on the 17th floor in a small city. Surely not that long. Then I tested negative for Lyme. It began then with a still nameless virus. It struck on a Tuesday. It was like a cold, just a cold, runny nose, itchy throat, aching eyes. I went to work that day. I took some over-the-counter meds and powered through. The same the next day. I was groggy and congested and running a low-grade fever, but it was no biggie. I could work. Then on Thursday, I woke to a sinus inflammation so bad one eye was swollen shut. The glands on that side of the neck standing out like new potatoes under my skin, Hot pain flashing when I touched them removed my head. That day I took off from work and went to see a doctor. Antibiotics and antihistamines and anti-inflammatories were prescribed, but to be honest, they made no difference. By Friday, I could barely lift my head from my pillow and Stevie, my other half, spent the day taking my temperature and hovering in the apartment, looking worried. But it passed. By the following Monday, my fever was gone, and I was able to eat a little, and on that Thursday, I was exhausted and weak, but well enough to try to go back to work. But that was as well as I ever got. My strength never returned. I went back to the doctor after ten more days and was diagnosed with post-viral syndrome. It would pass, he said, with time and good food and exercise. Exercise. I couldn't walk the length of myself without needing to lie down. Eight months later, I'm in the same state. They're calling it chronic fatigue syndrome now. I've tried every medicine in my doctor's arsenal. I've tried SSRIs, CBT, and the pain clinic. I've tried hypnosis, chiropractic adjustments, and deep tissue massage. I've tried cold water therapy, macrobiotic diets, and physio. I even went to see a homeopath, but when he showed me the saddle he bangs the water on to make it into medicine, I left. I remain exhausted and foggy and weak. 
On a bad day, I can't get out of bed, string a sentence together, eat more than three bites of anything. On a good day, I drag myself out of bed, choke down a small meal, force myself to go out and walk a half mile around the park. I tried with work. I did. I went in until it became clear that every one day nine to five at my desk had to be traded for three days spent lying in my bed in a darkened room. So, I arranged to work from home. It had worked during the pandemic and was no big deal to my boss, but even that turned out to be unmanageable. Attending the daily stand-up by Zoom at nine left me unable to think straight until two. My boss had exhausted every option for me, but in the end, he needed me to be his employee, and since I was now fully employed with mere existence, I didn't have the bandwidth for him. So now, I'm unemployed. Stevie is unperturbed. We can afford it, she says. We have savings, and with my new role... She doesn't finish. She was already earning 40% more than me before her new role. It's more than double now. With her bonus and the savings we have, I can earn nothing, and we will be just as comfortable as we were before. Just rest, she says, giving me an absent-minded pat on the arm. Get well, then you can decide what you want to do next. I start going to the cinema, to the matinees. There's something transformative about the cinema. You go in one person and leave someone else. The largeness of the movie dominates your thoughts. You feel you did something. Even though you just sat in a padded seat and put popcorn into your mouth, you feel the character's plight and their triumph is your own. Plus, as it was now autumn, the matinee began in broad daylight and ended after sunset. So you could also feel you were walking out into a completely different day. Our local cinema is only a short walk from the apartment, so any day I have the energy to go to the park, I can go there instead. On days when even that is a stretch, I can sleep, slumped in my seat in the flickering semi-darkness. Though they show blockbusters at the weekends, just like all the other cinemas, Monday through Thursday, they show a random eclectic mix of movies. Anything from Steel Magnolias to Die Hard, Gone with the Wind, Nosferatu, Napoleon Dynamite, Annie Hall, some of them I know so much about but have never seen, and I come out feeling sometimes enchanted, sometimes cheated. Cult classics that leave me rolling my eyes, critically derided movies that leave me almost in tears, shaken to my core. The matinees aren't well attended. There are never more than five other viewers, and I'm often almost completely alone. I buy a loyalty card, so to make it as cheap as possible. I smuggle my own snacks inside, the deep pockets of my winter coat. I feel the cold more now, too, and often lull in my seat, with it laid across me like a blanket. The first time it happens, I put it down to the movie. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I go into the theater from milky, frosty afternoon sunlight, and re-emerge into a black night, icy rain sheeting from the sky. There had only been one other patron three rows in front of me. When the credits began to roll, I stretched and pulled my coat on, but I noticed they didn't move. Some film fanatics are that way. They sit there until the lights are fully back up. It's the sort of movie that makes you question reality. That's the whole point of it. For an hour, I feel disjointed and out of place, as if I'd had an edible with a bit too much in it. 
I walk back to the apartment thinking about dinner. On days when I feel up to it, such as today, I cook. I joke with Stevie that she's turned me into a 1950s housewife in those days, and she smirks conspiratorially and asks where my frilly apron is, where her martini is. I'm going to make fajitas. Everything I make is quick and easy. I seldom have the energy to stand more than 20 or 30 minutes cooking, especially as the heat of the stove leaves me wilting. Beef sizzle steaks, red peppers, and Stevie's secret spice mix, which she mixes in large mason jars every few months, are on my mind as I come into the apartment. But when I go to the fridge, there's no beef. Instead, there's a pack of chicken breasts. I stand staring, frowning in confusion. I bought it yesterday on my walk. Beef sizzle steak. I looked at the worktop where I'd left the chopping board, knives and peppers, and a large onion, ready and waiting for my return. The peppers are green. What? I do not like green peppers. I do not eat them. They make me belch. I would never buy green peppers. And it was me who did buy them. After the beef just yesterday, two shiny red bell peppers. I could remember the firmness of them in my hands as I'd taken them to the counter. Weird. I stand for a moment, taking it all in. But ultimately, I decide that it's brain fog and the movie. And I get on with cooking dinner. Chicken fajitas. Stevie's spices smell as fragrant and familiar as ever as they hit the pan, and I find I am sighing in relief. When we sit down to eat, I try to explain it to Stevie, but the conversation is derailed almost immediately. But you love green peppers, she asks vaguely, tucking in her tortilla edges as she rolls it. What? I ask. Since when? I hate green peppers. When have you ever seen me eat a green pepper? She looks at me then, taking a bite of her neatly rolled fajita tortilla. Literally today? She says with a full mouth, waving a hand at the food on the table. But that's what I'm saying. I try again. I can't believe I bought these. I don't like green peppers. Well, I didn't buy them. Stevie laughs a bit. You know it's messed with your brain. Maybe this viral thing has made you colorblind too. She takes her phone out and taps on it for a few seconds, then holds it up towards me. What does that say? She asks. On the screen is an Ishihara plate. Red dots of various hues on a green dotted background spell out a word. I read it out loud. Sexy, I say. Oh, you flatterer. Stevie purrs with fake modesty, and I give up then. Because it doesn't really matter. And because she is sexy. And because I find I'm not totally out of energy today after all. It was Stevie herself the next time. I'd been in the cinema again. Under the Skin was playing, and I'd been disappointed. It was well done, but it was nothing like the book, which I'd loved. I'd nodded off a bit in the middle. There were a few other patrons, and I noticed as I leave that there's just that one person who'd waited through the credits of Eternal Sunshine. Someone was doing the same thing today. A true movie buff, I think to myself as I pull my coat on. Back home, all seemed normal until Stevie came in. Hi, she says brightly as she comes through the door. 
I'm making halloumi burgers on the stove and don't look up right away. When I do, I get such a shock that I drop the spatula. Her hair, which that morning had been the color of honey and reached almost to her waist, was now a chin-length, chestnut-brown bob. I stand and gape at her, and she stares back. What? she asks, twisting to look behind her to see what I could be staring at. What is it? Your hair? I gasp. What about my hair? She asks, putting a hand up to touch it. Is there something in it? It's short, I stammer. And it's brown. Yes? Stevie sounds perplexed. It was long, blonde? I'm struggling to find words. This feels cruel, and Stevie is never cruel. Well, yeah, but that was a long time ago, Jamie. Stevie turns away, putting her bag down. I'm not 23 anymore. I didn't know you liked it so much. This morning. It was long and blonde this morning. I am shouting, and I don't want to be, but I can't help it. My pulse races and skips. What the fuck is all I can think. What the fuck, what the fuck? Jamie? Stevie's voice is full of concern now. She comes closer, lays the back of her hand against my forehead. You don't seem hot. Do you feel hot? I push her away, but gently. Listen, I say. This morning when you left for work, you had almost waist-length blonde hair. Jamie, I'm worried about you. Stevie turns away again and takes out her phone. I'm going to give the doctor a call and see if you can come in. There's an acrid plume as the halloumi begins to burn, and I move the pan off the flame and flip it quickly, messily, with my fingers, so it will still be edible. I go to the sink to run my singed fingertips under cold water. There on the windowsill, by the sink, is the framed photo of Stevie and I at our friend's wedding. It was taken just before I got sick. The wedding had been delayed multiple times by the pandemic and was a raucous affair by the time it finally occurred. We are seated, leaning into one another, tequilas in hands, raised in a toast. Stevie is grinning broadly at the camera, but I have my face buried in her hair, her shiny, chin-length chestnut hair. At first, I think it's Stevie. In fact, the incident after Gaslight almost convinced me. Have you ever seen it? Everyone talks about how someone is gaslighting them. It should be legally required to watch the movie if you're going to make the claim. FYI, people just saying stuff you don't agree with aren't gaslighting you. Anyway, I'd watched Gaslight almost alone. Just the one movie buff was there, and as usual, I got up and left before them. When I got home, the carpets are gone. And I don't mean that they'd been ripped up and taken. I mean they were gone as if they'd never been there. And in their place is exquisite hardwood flooring, laid out in a herringbone pattern that stretches continuously from the front door across the entire surface of the apartment's floors. Across rooms, around corners, and through doorways it goes, its pattern unbroken, its surface shining like satin. Here and there, in places that make sense like the sides of the bed and in front of the couch, bright rugs lie, deep pile and inviting. We have a blazing row when Stevie walks in. Or, I have one anyway. She is mystified. I am affronted. I accuse her of gaslighting, and she calls the psych service the doctor had suggested last time. I rage and scream at her, and she asks them for immediate help, 
help comes, and I spend three days inpatient. When I get home, humbled by the more legitimate plights of my fellow patients, the floors remain hardwood, and Stevie is cautious and measured with me. I resolve to keep it to myself next time. But next time proves Stevie innocent. Innocent or a witch. Because I go one icy January afternoon to see the man with two brains, and when I emerge into the street afterwards, Blossom is falling gently in the mild air from the row of cherry trees across the street. I stop and goggle at them, astonished and confused. It was winter, wasn't it? I'm in my big winter coat. How can there be blossom on the trees? Where's the ice? I walk home slowly, tense, looking at everything through frightened eyes, searching for other differences. When I get home, Stevie's already there. She's working at the desk in the corner of the bedroom, where I had once worked. I'm careful not to reveal too much, wandering closer to her, looking for clues. There, the calendar. It has opened a march. I scan the boxes on it, and seeing the words Stevie Dentist 11.30 in one, I clear my throat, trying to sound casual. <clears throat> Maybe I should come to the dentist with you? I venture. Stevie swivels her eyes to the calendar, and then to my face. That was last Tuesday, silly, not tomorrow. Anyway, you just went last month, remember? Do you have a toothache or something? Uh, no, no. I say hurriedly, staring at the calendar and making a mental note of the date. No, I just forgotten. Stevie rubs my arm comfortingly, and then turns back to her laptop. I've got chicken in the slow cooker, she says. Why don't you go and lie down for a bit? In bed, I pull an eye mask on and calculate that during the matinee that afternoon, I've somehow misplaced 54 days. It's around then I start to notice the true movie buff more. I only ever see them from the back. They sit in the third row, far too close to the screen for me. But they look sort of familiar. I no longer trust my brain and can't really know if it's because I actually know them or if it's simply that I've seen them so many times from the back during matinees. They sit very still, I notice. I've never seen them eating or checking their phone. The whole time I am there, they seem to sit facing front, staring intently at the screen. They are always already there when I arrive, too, so I never see them come in and get settled. And they never leave before me, either. They must really love films. I pay attention for a while and realize they are at every movie I am at. There are others, of course. A fat guy with a fedora, which he refuses to remove, and which is once the subject of an argument with a patron behind him. A blustering man who is similarly unwilling to remove himself one seat to the left. Then there are the two middle-aged women who come in in gym gear and eat Maltesers and sip water from sports bottles for the full duration of the film. And a spotty boy, who could be 15 or 26, who I overhear trying to impress the popcorn seller with movie trivia while she rolls her eyes and snaps her gum. But none of them are there every time. All of them will occasionally arrive after me or leave before or with me. Most of them will occasionally leave for a bathroom break too. But not this one. The true movie buff just sits, always in the same seat, in the same row, stock still and staring, every time. 
As the year advances, in fits and starts, as time continues to slip away at the matinees, my life becomes more and more disjointed. I return from Flash Gordon to find we have an elderly cat. An extra bedroom appears in our apartment while I am watching A Clockwork Orange. When I come home dazed and overtired after seeing The Truman Show, I find that despite the long and agonized discussions we had a decade back about remaining child-free, we now have two children, Martha and Josh. I read them a bedtime story while my heart pounds and my mind freewheels. So many questions crowd my thoughts, but I can't ask any of them. What sort of parent has such questions about the very existence of their offspring? There is some pattern to it. Nothing ever changes back. The carpets never reappear. The children never disappear. Everything that shifts remains shifted. Sometimes I am so exhausted from the relentless masking and pivoting required to live my life that I forget that it was an illness that led me to this situation. It begins to feel like my life itself is the illness. I start struggling to recognize myself in the mirror. Each of my features appears at once to be completely familiar and correct, and still not me. This scares me, so I begin avoiding the mirrors. In June, I walk to the cinema and go in to see The Force Awakens. When I go to walk home afterwards through humid summer air, I find myself in front of a red brick mid-terrace house. I look around for my apartment block and can't see it. I look at the unfamiliar house key in my hand and know it will fit the green door of the house. I try it, and it does. Inside, Martha is lying on her stomach on the rug that was in our old living room, now in this new one, kicking her feet and coloring with crayons. Stevie is in the kitchen with Josh on her hip, and when she turns to greet me, I see her belly is round with another child. It's ridiculous how ominous it feels. Babies are supposed to bring, to be a joy, but the roundness of her belly frightens me. It seems full of whatever is wrong somehow. My life no longer fits me and this bulge in the middle of my wife seems somehow at the core of that. Where it presses out, I am pressed inward. As it grows, my knowledge of my own life, my own self, shrinks. Stevie catches me staring and grins. Excited? She asks. Only seven more weeks. <laughs> I nod and turn away so she won't see the lie on my face. I'm not excited. I'm horrified. Not by the kid. I've come to quite enjoy being a parent. Now I'm more used to it. But by the way, my life is slipping away, slipping past, and I am powerless to stop it, even to question it. It's been months since my stint on the psych ward, but the memory of it is vivid enough to know I don't want to go back there. There's no help for me there. I know that one answer would be to merely stop going. After all, the shifts only seem to occur when I'm in there, in the cinema. But the matinees have slowly become the only place I feel normal. I slide guiltily into my seat, stretch out my legs, and glance around. Here, in the dark of the matinee, I know who I am. I know what I am doing. I'm me, Jamie just taking in an afternoon movie, as anyone might do. The world and its events churning dizzily, muddying my life into an unrecognizable nonsense beyond the double doors, need not concern me. 
for the next few hours, I can relax, suspend disbelief, and enjoy the escapism of whatever it is the projector girl has to offer that day. I start to watch the true movie buff and wonder about them. Who are they? Where do they live? Why are they there almost every afternoon as I am? That sort of thing. I don't try to speak to them, of course. They appear transfixed, and I don't want to intrude. Especially because I could no longer even begin to describe why I myself am there so often nowadays. The new baby, a girl we named Madeline, arrives and gains several months of growing one afternoon when I'm watching the red shoes. Stevie's annoyed with me when I come in, and the baby Madeline is wailing in her cot. Do you need help? I am immediately on my guard. The baby is here, and not even very new. Stevie's face is stony with rage. Where the fuck did you go? She hisses. And where is the formula? I was in the cinema. I say, too quickly, and Stevie explodes. Through the reclamations, I glean that all is not well, that breastfeeding is going very badly, and that when I left, it was to buy formula and bottles and return ASAP to feed the baby and console my wife. I take the barrage of reproaches on the chin. What else can I do? I can't tell Stevie that when I left to go to the cinema, she still had four weeks of pregnancy left, and the nursery the baby is wailing in was half-painted, and I had no way to predict that when I came out again, she'd have had a terrible birth and a months-long recovery and would need me to bring home formula. She'd summon the help from the psych ward again immediately if I did that. And who could blame her? I go out once again and return as fast as possible and feed the baby. When Stevie is finally calm enough to talk to me kindly, she calls me M. I don't know what M is short for, but it's not Jamie. It's too hard, I decide. I can't keep up with it. My entire life feels like an unexploded bomb, which I handle every day gingerly with a gnawing sense of terror waiting for the next explosion. One day, I doze through the third man, and when I walk through the door, Stevie leans in and kisses me as she passes by with a now nine- or ten-month-old Maddie on her hip. Hello, babe, she says. How was work? I stop in my tracks. Work? Am I back at work? What do I do now? And where and for whom? My heart jackhammers in my chest. Is this it? Is my life now complete? If I'm at work, I can't be in the cinema after all. Yeah, fine, I say carefully. And the presentation? She goes on. How'd Jeff like it? Did he seem pleased? Do you think the promotion will come to you? Um, I'm not sure. I manage. I might just jump in the shower. I think I'm getting a migraine. Normally I try to drill, albeit gently. I try to find out the basics of the newest shift so I can continue to pretend to know who I am, what's happening. But tonight, I can't face it. I just don't have the energy. Energy. I realize suddenly that it's been many weeks since I had to lie down in the afternoon, or sleep 14 hours overnight, or had to take painkillers to be able to walk a short distance. Am I well again, I wonder? I feel appalling but not, now I think about it, physically. I don't ask Stevie about it, about anything. I continue my ruse of the migraine and have a shower and go straight to bed, pulling the eye mask on to hide from my family, from myself. <laughs> 
The next day, Stevie wakes me at seven, and I find myself leaving the house at quarter to nine, concluding that wherever I now work must be close by. I buy a breakfast bagel from a street stall and sit in the park with it, watching the pigeons who have come in optimism to see if I am a clumsy eater. I throw them a few crumbs and check the time. I'm counting down the minutes until I can go back to the cinema. The movie is Donnie Darko, which I've never seen, and which I find poignant given my own predicament, and strangely beautiful. When the credits roll, I don't move. I cannot face walking home, going back to whatever my life is or will be today. Just the idea of it quickens my pulse and dries my mouth and fills me with dread. The true movie buff is here, and I decide to sit here with them, see what they see. The credits finish and the lights stay low. On a whim, I rise, pick up my coat, and make my way down towards the front. I reach their row and, squinting in the dark at my own feet, I shuffle along until I am level with them. I sit down in the seat next to them, putting my coat across my lap. Hello, I offer. I look at the side of their face, but I can barely see it in the dark. They turn towards me, but don't speak. I am opening my mouth to try again when two things happen. The first is that the true movie buff puts their hand on mine, but not gently, not in caress, in a vice-like grip pinning my arm to the armrest at the wrist. The second is that the lights come on and I can see their face. It's me. It's my face. I have been avoiding mirrors for months now, but still, my features are unmistakable, familiar. It's like looking in a mirror in a way that actually looking in a mirror hasn't been for a long time. I look down at where I am pinning my arm down and open my mouth, but the other me opens their mouth too and they lean close to me and say something. The words slide into me like a sharp, warm knife into butter. There is a moment of stillness when they are just a string of noises received by my ears, and then the meaning sharpens into focus in my mind, and as it does, the words become like hot, tearing shrapnel. My arteries sever. My heart is bisected. Blood and bile fill my guts. The thing they say, I say, is so terrifying, so mind-shatteringly awful that I am petrified. Frozen in place, glued to my seat, mouth wide and diaphragm in spasm, unable even to draw my next breath. My hands and feet are ice, my middle is a hot, roiling agony of fear. I roll horrified eyes up at my other self, and they rise, the other me, and lift the jacket off my lap and put it on. And then they leave, the other me. I watch as I walk away and leave my own self frozen in fear in the third row of the cinema. I am here still, in the dark of the matinee. I don't know what goes on outside of here. My life is only matinees now. I'm still frozen and cannot turn my head. But some days during a movie, I think I feel eyes on me. Sense that perhaps there is a third one of us. That they, that I, sit a few rows back 
dawdling in a few hours of escapism from their increasingly perplexing life. And I wait. You want to know, don't you? What it was I said that so terrified me. What words sent me into this rigor of terror, pinning me into this seat? Of course you do. And I will tell you, when it all gets too much, and you come and sit down beside me. This story was written by Beck Stranger and narrated by Kieran Regan. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and why we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com, and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production. Quack. Quack.